Blog Talk Radio. It's time for Lickin' On Lending. Welcome, everybody. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Lickin' On Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news, all related to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Transformational Mortgage Solutions. To participate in today's program, our guest call in line is 646 716 Four nine seven two. Now here's your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'. Let's begin. So good to have you with us, everybody. It's Monday, August seventh, two thousand seventeen. We say that at the top of the podcast because many of you listen on a downloaded basis. We're also very grateful for all of those of you who listen live via the internet as well as dialing in. And I appreciate it. Again, this podcast is created by mortgage professionals. It is for mortgage professionals. And we are grateful to have you as a listener. I am astounded at how many people are listing all over the nation. Uh, I just got another speaking, a keynote keynote speaker address to to give. And as a result of the podcast, it just blows me away. So it's an honor. And our commitment back to you is we're going to be doing our best to bring you timely information in an audio format. Rob Crispin and Joe do a good job. Rob Crispin is with the Crispin Report. And uh, Joe does a good job with his uh, newsletters out there. Our job is to bring it to you in an audio format. I get tired of reading after a while, so I really appreciate being able to listen to the news and all that's going on. So we hope you'll find this podcast helpful. Many of you, thousands of you, are already. We really appreciate it. Uh, Let's talk about a little bit about this today's hot topic. We're continuing our series on the uh, GSE reform that's pending. It's coming. And we have on the podcast, Mark Jones, who's executive vice president of uh, AmeriFirst Mortgage Banking Group. He's also the co-founder of the organization. He's probably one of the more respected mortgage bankers out there. He's on the governors, board of governors for the NBA. And I'm really honored to be in such a good friendship with Mark. And he's also joining me as the co-host of the new Lickin' on Leadership podcast that we're launching September 1st, so be sure to be paying attention to that. Also, something that just got launched is our new website. So you can head out to when currently our current website, we're pointing the URL, the Licking on Lending URL, over to Blog Talk Radio. You can still always see that. We keep that alive and well. It'll be updated. But we have our new website. We have just launched and released the DNS servers across the world. It takes a little while for the Internet to show up, so but it should be showing up here relatively soon. So, again, we're excited to have you as our listeners. We appreciate you being here. And we also say a special thank you to our sponsors, ArchMI, the creator of the new innovative RateStar program, as well as Motivity Solutions providing real-time reporting and dashboards and scorecards. Velma, the effective and efficient mortgage marketing system known as Virtual Electronic Marketing Assistant. It's an excellent platform. We use it here, as you many of you know. Also, Simplify, real-time electronic communications exchange, the Mortgage Collaborative, the power of the network. we got the summer conference. We'll be talking about that in just a minute. And then Finastra. Finastra is the old DNH. It's combined with uh, uh, MySyst in Europe. They've become one of the largest tech companies, uh, fintech companies, financial technology companies in the world. So very excited to have them all as partners. Of course, I want to say a special thank you to Alice, Andy, 
to Joe and Sam as well now, the newest guest in our lineup, Joe, I mean, uh, uh, Les Parker. So we got him a little bit later. Always oh, getting a lot of comment and feedback about Les's segment, especially with his music parodies. So we have the October 22nd annual convention showing up here in Colorado for the NBA. If you haven't registered for that, strongly recommend you do so. October 22nd through the 25th, I'm registered, got my hotel, flights all booked, we're set. Look forward to seeing you there. We'll be doing a live bod- podcast from the conference and uh, from most likely the Finastra's uh, sound booth, or from the sound booth, their, their display booth. So I look forward to for many of you to swing by at the conference. Also, more coming up we're right around the corner is the Mortgage Collaborative Summer Conference, and uh, that starts on the 20th. We're going to be there during the lunar eclipse. And what's interesting, it's in Nashville. And the lunar eclipse, you know, I said lunar, it's a solar eclipse, full solar eclipse that's happening. And the path for that solar eclipse, it's going right over Nashville. So we're going to take a break from the conference. We're going to go up to the roof of the Omni Hotel there in Nashville, put on our uh, uh, glasses, uh, the special glasses one of the vendors has provided, and we're going to be looking at that, observing that. So a lot of interesting things going on. Jim Blanchard, who works with me in the consulting business, Really bringing together teams will be our opening keynote speaker. They're very excited. So if you have not checked out the summer conference for the Mortgage Collaborative, be sure to do so now. If you want to check out all the conferences, go to the MBA website and Google MBA conferences and education or go over to Sam Garcia's website. Man, he has every conference known to man listed out there at MortgageDaily.com. Normally, at this time, we would be heading over to our good friend Joe Farr, but he's off at another conference, at the Lenders One conference, so he sent his notes. Now, every time he sends me these notes, I read them over and try to get into it a little bit, but you know, I don't think there's anyone that delivers the news and the economic data quite as well as our friend Joe Farr. There is no economic data being released today. However, last week, we saw some weakness in the data early in the week. And it was partially offset by better-than-expected employment data that came out on Friday. Then we also, the core PCE, came out on Tuesday showing an annual increase in prices of 1.5%. That was the same rate as the previous month, so no real surprises there. The Fed wants to see this increase. That's one of the focuses the Fed has. Also Tuesday, General Motors reported a large drop uh, in uh, second quarter auto sales. I've been noticing that. I saw a news report just so in, in the house before we started the, the uh, I have a separate studio out here on my property here in um, Marble Falls, Texas. So I noticed that when I went in there, they were talking about auto sales and it was, it's off. Um, on Thursday, the ISM or the Institute of Supply Managers Services Index came out for July, came in well below expectations at the lowest level since August, 2016. These all had favorable effect on mortgage rates last week. So, you know, as we got one of those kind of interesting uh, economic you know, worlds. When it was bad news for the world uh, in economics, it's good news for mortgage rates, and it's anticipation the Feds will keep rates lower. And as a result of that, that's what happened last week. Thursday afternoon was then was when it was reported uh, that a grand jury had begun uh, to really look further into the Russian investigation. Um, just a whole lot. I mean, we'll see. A whole lot to do about nothing, in my opinion. We'll see. But it is, you know, it has these impacts, right? It's instability, a little concern, and it has a tendency to keep rates, push rates a little bit lower. 
on that news. So anyway, prices go higher, rates go lower. So anyway, on Friday, uh, better than expected jobs report again. We talked about that. Uh, reversed about half of the improvement that we saw during the week. Jobs exceeded expectations by 209,000. The unemployment rate fell to 4.3. That's good news. Wage inflation remained at a usual rate of 2.5%. Now this week, we got the JOLTS report that's coming out tomorrow. The producer price index is on Thursday. Uh, the CPI number, very important number, comes out on Friday. The Treasury auctions, we got three of them this week. Three-year, 10-year, and 30-year. They're on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, respectfully. So good information. I look forward to seeing it. If you haven't checked out Joe's website at MBS Quote Line, do so right away. And without any further ado, we're going to take a quick ad break, and then we're going to be with, back with Les Parker's update on the macro view of what he sees going on. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Looking for that competitive edge? MBS Quoteline delivers live market coverage for originators. Get up-to-the-minute mortgage market news and analysis as events occur. Get MBS prices as trades happen. Straight to your computer, email, cell phone, or PDA. Know in advance when your investors will reprice. Make better lock float decisions and increase your income. Be the expert your clients expect. And know what's moving interest rates right now, tomorrow, and beyond. MBS Quoteline, delivering live market coverage for originators. Learn more about MBS Quoteline today at MBS mbsquoteline.com mbsquoteline.com 646-716-4972 The Lickin' on Lending Show is back. Here is your host, David Lickin. So good to give you. Thank you. A couple of you shout over some comments. Thank you about that thing that you uh, thought I did an all right job. Yeah, we all would rather have our good friend Joe back doing that. But who is also here today? Well, this, or at least by recording, is our friend Les Parker of Loan Logics with a macro view of what's going on. Again, with another parody. So, Les Parker, take it away. Thanks, Dave. This is Market Logics Live, sponsored by Loan Logics. We're too smarty for the doves. Too smarty for the doves. Doves going to leave stocks. We're too smarty for your shorts. Too smarty for your shorts. So tidy it hurts. The United G4 Bank of England. ECB, Fed, and Bank of Japan are worried that their signals are not slowing investors from rushing to liquid, risk-on trades. Hear what the Bank of England recently said. Very low long-term interest rates make assets vulnerable to a repricing. Other ways exist for a great repricing. We still expect equity bubbles popping, creating a flight-to-quality and a rally in treasuries. These views are my own. Go to LoanLogics.com to subscribe to my daily newsletter. I'm too sexy for my shirt. Too sexy for my shirt. So sexy it hurts. Oh, Parker, 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 what are we going to do with you? That's actually pretty entertaining. Enjoy it a lot. Well, Alice Alvey normally would be here. She's in a meeting, but she took a few moments. She called me and said, Dave, I hate to do this for you, but I've got an idea for today's segment. What I'd like to do is kind of give a little bit of a summary of what we've been listening to on GSE Reform. She's been telling so many people about this podcast uh, last ones that we've been having, and so we're gonna we have uh, uh, this one and one more scheduled after this. We've had four. We're about ready to have a 
five? Is that what it is? Gosh, is it already up to that, or are we in our fourth? I'll have to double-check anyway. We've got a couple more coming up. We're going to be talking about that a little bit later. But Alice Almy does a good recap of this. So with that, here's Alice Alvey. Thanks, Dave, and hello, everyone. This is Alice Alvey, and today I wanted to give you a little bit of a summary to prepare for Mark Jones's segment, our fourth one in the series for the GSE reform. And what I want to be able to give you all a summary on is what the recordings have been in the past so that when you hear Mark today, it's going to, one, prompt you to go listen to all the other episodes that we've recorded on the subject, and then to kind of tee up for Mark's uh, views on GSE reform. So to get started, the first one is question to always ask is, why are we going down these, this road? Why do we care? So the status quo that we have today with Fannie and Freddie does not protect taxpayers in the event of another failure because it lives in the same world of an implied guarantee by the government. So the implied guarantee is something people like. They like the idea that, hey, I can invest in a security and if something ever goes wrong with Fannie and Freddie, then I'm protected as an investor. However, for us taxpayers, we don't want to have to go through that pain again of potentially really incurring a lot of debt in the event of the failure of either one or both or some other catastrophic event we can't begin to predict. So we've been talking about the need for GSE reform. Bill Cosgrove's episode, you do want to go back and listen to. Bill did a great summary on the benefits to lenders. Um, This is a critical aspect of needing to go through the steps for reform to make sure as lenders that there is fair pricing and an equal footing between big banks, mid-sized, small lenders, all the entities that are out there bringing benefits to borrowers for lending options and making sure that the big big banks don't get favorable pricing. So listen to Bill's uh, perspective on that. Dave Stevens was on the show to present the MBA plan. So the MBA plan is to use the legislative process to create a multi-guarantor process, right? So in this world, we use the term guarantor. That's talking about Fannie and Freddie. And what we want to do is be able to develop a shift from their current environment where they are under the government conservatorship and have them get solely being owned by private shareholders. So again, removing this implied guarantee and getting to where we have a very explicit guarantee, but just for MBS pools. So that's one of the key components of the MBA plan. And the way this would be paid for is through stronger capital requirements for both of those entities and to create a federal insurance fund with premiums paid by them. Um, There also may be some additional risk sharing from the MI companies as well. So the the MBA proposal would allow for more than a Fannie and a Freddie. It would also hope to build another Uh, segment of additional guarantors. That's difficult to see, um, but the the good parts about the MBA framework are to keep what's good that's working, but clean it up so that we we really do have something that works for uh, the industry and, and takes out all this uncertainty for the taxpayers. So their plan is definitely something that's worth taking a deep dive into and keeping in mind that it's just a starting point. We know that every single plan that gets presented is designed to educate Congress and make sure that they have enough information to start debating this. Um, We know changes will be made, but this is a great way to put something on the table for discussion. 
So along that line, in the following week, we had Jim Parrott. He's a senior fellow at the Urban Institute and owner of Falling Creek Advisors, and they provide financial institutions with strategic advice on housing finance issues. So Jim added some great perspective. A couple of takeaways that I picked up from him is, you know, we are likely to get a multi-guarantor framework, but how can the market sustain more than two? He had some great insight into that. And he believes the MBA plan at the 30,000-foot level works, you know, this concept of a utility. Where I get, you know, concerned is there's so much detail. Those of you who live this every day, just from the simplicity of how I lock rates, how I put pools together, how products are developed and designed. You think of the impact just to the daily routines of mortgage banking, and you wonder how do we get from the 30,000 foot down into the detail where it actually functions day to day. So does Congress have enough information to really be able to grasp this concept in a way that they'll pick it up and want to want to um, be able to work with it. And he made a great point about there's so much dysfunction out there that, you know, the reality is we have to get the Senate Banking Committee to go pick this up and be uh, the ones to issue a bill to start this. And, and can that really be done in the first quarter of 2018? So um, there's some great feedback from Jim Parrott. You want to listen to that third component. And then our fourth component that we've had already, and I apologize, I think in the beginning I said four total, Mark will be our fifth. The fourth component was the panel discussion with great experts like Joe Murin, who was former president of, G- G- of Ginny May, Jay Brinkman, former chief economist at the NBA, and Gary Ort, who recently uh, was at Texas Capital Bank. So between these three, we had over 100 years of combined experience on the show, and they did a fabulous job of bringing and different components about um, helping all of us understand how the role of the government is so critical for this and how could possibly a Ginny May model actually work as somewhat of a framework. Now, there's some challenges with that because obviously Ginny Mae already takes fully insured loans and Ginny Mae has this issue about trying to ad- that we would have to advance funds as lender. For those of you who are familiar with Ginny Mae and how differently they work from Fannie, you know, lenders got to pay if the bar- even if the borrower doesn't make the payment. So again, looking at how in the weeds does this really work. Um, and Joe and Gary and Jay had some great insight. Um, and, and really, Jay made some great notes about Fannie um, is a historical accident. So you've got to go listen to that show and, and get the background. So those are my quick highlights, Dave, that I wanted to provide everyone about the previous shows that we've done and leading up into what I know will be great information from Mark Jones, who runs a fabulous company with his partner, David Game, Amerifirst out of Michigan. Thanks, Dave, and look forward to the rest of the show. Yes, Alice, thank you so much. Appreciate you taking the time to recording your comments. Alice, again, is with United Home, works with Bill Cosgrove. We're excited to have uh, her continue with uh, us here on the program. And as she said on another program, she is continuing to do the speaking and out there in the conferences, uh, doing a lot of conference schedules uh, speaking. So if you want to get a hold of Alice for a conference or have her speak at one of your events, be sure to get a hold of her. Let's 
take a quick break, talk about the Mortgage Collaborative. It's got their summer conference at the Omni Hotel starting on the 20th. We're flying in, and again, we're going to be watching the lunar, excuse me, the solar eclipse on Monday. And so a lot of exciting stuff going on there, but it's a really a good lineup of speakers. Here's why I believe in the Mortgage Collaborative. The Mortgage Collaborative allows you to have intimate, up-close up and personal conversations with the top people in our industry. I love this conference because of the people you're able to meet with, not just once and then meeting. And it's, it, it's really where you get together socially. You're talking and getting to know each other. This is a relationship-driven business, and I can't think of a better place to do than, than at the Mortgage Collaborative. ArchMI is a great sponsor, and we're so thrilled to have them here with us. They talk about leading with us. So let's hear from our sponsor, uh, ArchMI. Be right back after this brief break. Thanks, David. It's spring home buying season, and lenders are competing for business. With ArchMI RateStar, you can dominate your market and claim the lion's share of business. How? RateStar allows you to assess individual loan risk more precisely. If you're hunting for more profitable business, RateStar helps you capture and close more of those loans. With RateStar, you're leader of the pack. Partner with ArchMI and lead with us. That's a great, great, great expression. Partner with them and lead. They are the leading MI company out there in this space. Another leading provider of information to our industry is Sam Garcia. Sam, good to have you with us. Did you get as much rain up there in Dallas last night as we got down here, down out here in Marble Falls area, um, which we're just, for the listeners that don't know where Marble Falls is, we're just west of uh, Austin, where Andy Shell is at. We're west of them about an hour, and we've gotten some places up to 10 inches of rain since midnight. So there's a lot of water that fell out of the sky here. So yeah. how about you up there? You, you know, I, I hate to admit it, but um, I sleep through everything, and I didn't hear a, a thing. I just slept and didn't notice any, any trucks or fire engines or anything in the morning, so I guess not. Yeah, uh, well, anyway, we had a lot of it, so you do a great job of bringing, speaking of floods, a flood of information, what's going on in the market, so let's cover the headlines that you're covering right now, Sam. Give us an update, well, you please. Know, you know, today I'm gonna I've got lots of interesting uh, mortgage employment news stuff because there was just a lot of information we got out this weekend and last Friday. Um, as you know, and as Joe usually reports, the um, uh, the Labor Department reported the uh, mortgage employment report last week, and the data was good in general for last week. That drove up uh, interest rates um, and. Uh, of course, we also track more specifically from that report jobs in the mortgage industry. So um, that report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics indicated that there were 341,100 non-bank mortgage employees as of June. So um, the, the thing about that number is it was a uh, staffing jump by 5,000 jobs from May. That's a that's a big jump, you know, relative to uh, yeah. how much change there normally is there and. And compared to a year earlier, staffing uh, is up by 25,000 jobs. So, and of course, you know, you've, you've heard me uh, predicting all along that they're going to drop. Um, and at some point, we expect they will. But rates kind of haven't gone down as much, or up, should I say, as much as uh, we thought and had the impact they would. But um, we we use that data, as you know, to, to come up with our own number that includes jobs at financial institutions because the BLS data ex excludes bank jobs. So mortgage jobs, including those at financial institutions in June, we estimated at 740,800 people, um, and that consists of 319,700 mortgage jobs at banks, another 80,000 at credit unions, and then the 341,000 reported by the BLS. 
that's estimated staffing, and again, that's been relatively uh, growing. Um, now, I, you know, we, we have all this information about employment data this weekend, especially because we put out our uh, quarterly first quarter mortgage employment index. So that index is based on numbers we get from you know company reports, SEC filings. Uh, we do we get numbers from our mortgage. Uh, origination survey. And then uh, most importantly, we actually go to each individual state uh, to their employment departments and look up warrant filing data, which tells us uh, mass layoffs that are reported. Um, so w when we take that number, we add it all up to all the layoffs we tracked. Um, there were about a thousand layoffs that we, we were able to identify in the first quarter and then about 2,100 hiring. So that left a net, net gain of about 1,100 people in the in staffing and mortgage industry. Um, and while that was a gain, um, that was still fewer than the 3,300 jobs that were added in the, uh, in the fourth quarter of last year. Um, the biggest quarter over quarter gains were in Wisconsin, California, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, and Virginia. Um, and then what's interesting is Texas, which, you know, had been a model of growth during the era of distressed mortgages, had the biggest loss of jobs uh, during the first quarter. Interesting. Yeah. Um, among individual companies, Fairway Independent Mortgage had the biggest quarter-over-quarter quarter gain. We showed that they added 437 jobs during the quarter. Um, now, despite, you know, these favorable first quarter numbers I'm telling you about, um, preliminary data for the second quarter indicates that there have been, you know, 1,300 laid offs that we have identified so far in the period. And uh, we've already got uh, over 1,000 tracks so far for um, the following quarter. So um, you, what we're seeing is that the subsequent reports are likely to show uh, even more layoffs than I just mentioned to you as we track even more before we put them out. So, you know, we could see uh, that activity going up. Um, and I was interested to see that, um, you know, these companies had been, you know, had done so many layoffs and they were kind of, they sort of seemed under the radar. We didn't read about them at least uh, in the reports, you know, like re news reports and so forth. And some of these that we identified um, that either had, were included in the first quarter report or in subsequent quarters so far uh, include HSBC and of course, they're winding down their consumer mortgage business. HSBC noticed, notified the Illinois, Illinois Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity about 150 layoffs uh, that it made in Elmhurst, Elmhurst during June. And HSBC also laid off 360 people during June and July in Brandon, Florida. And it plans to let about another 200 people go at that location. Uh, NationStar advised the New York Labor Department that um, 175 uh, layoffs were planned uh, in that state for later this month, and and Ditech notified Minnesota uh, that there were 100, or it notified the state in June that there were 125 uh, layoffs in St. Paul, and those are on top of 437 uh, layoffs Ditech made in Texas during July. So that's where some of that activity is uh, happening at. Um, one interesting uh, thing we I, I noted um, in the uh, employment report is, you know, as, you, as many people remember, President Trump cast doubt during the presidential campaign about the accuracy of employment numbers that were being reported under the Obama administration. So in, in the last employment that the Obama administration issued, um, under you know the BLS issued uh, the data indicated that non-farm payrolls had increased by 2.157 million jobs during all of 2016. So um, now we fast forward to Trump administration reports and and the report that was put out for July uh, 
that was issued, of course, on Friday under the Trump administration. The full-year job growth was revised up to 2.24 million. So I just thought that was kind of interesting that, uh, you know, it looked like we were probably going to see some numbers revised down, and, and in fact, they were actually revised up a little bit here. But uh, anyway, you know, I had so much employment data, you know, um, I want to just get through all that, and I know you've got some good stuff following me, but uh, uh, just those are some of the interesting points you put out. I didn't even get to some of the headlines, which was there was a lot of them last week. There were There's so much going on, Sam, out there in the marketplace. And you do a great job. So rather than trying to just cover it all, what we do on this and what you do a really good job is just touching on the highlights. And, again, it is to get people to go to where? MortgageDaily.com. Check it out. Great place to advertise. Great place to connect. And uh, with all the information that's out there, again, Sam's data is excellent. News is outstanding on top of it. Sam, good job. If you want to get a hold of Sam, email him at samgarcia at mortgagedaily.com or call him at 214 521 1300. Sam, always a pleasure to have you. Oh, you know what? I thought there's one news item you did miss. It's a very important one. Did you know who's running for governor of Oklahoma? Who's Kevin running for governor? Stitt. Kevin Stitt, who's the founder of, you know, of, of one of the one of my favorite mortgage companies out there. We're going to talk more about that, but Kevin Stitt uh, is going to be is uh, is a regular guest on the program. We're going to have him uh, back talking about that. But he is uh, he's he's up there and running for governor. So the mortgage industry is going into politics in a big way. So cracks me up. So anyway, and we'll be uh, we'll be covering like, that too. That's a good good uh, highlight there that you brought up. Yeah, Kevin's a great guy, and I think you'll enjoy uh, getting more information on it. So anyway, Sam, thanks so much. Folks, we're going to be right back after this brief break. We've got our uh, sponsor, Motivity Solutions, that brings us the KPI of the week. And we are always interested in hearing what they have to say. And this one's talking about underwriting to closing. We'll be right back after this brief break with Sam Manuel. Thanks very much. Great to be here as always. And this week we have another key performance indicator related to TRID. And the KPI is underwriting to closing days. And like all TRID metrics, the focus is the estimated closing date and how far in advance a file should be submitted to underwriting to make provisions for any and all underwriting eventualities, possibly multiple resubmissions, and leaving enough time after final approval to finish the loan and deliver the closing disclosure on time. A very common practice for lenders that have automated their analytics with mortgage business intelligence like Movation is to have the system automatically send email alerts to participants on those loans that are running late and at risk of missing these milestone deadlines. Now, This allows loan participants to continually reprioritize their workflow to ensure they remain compliant, clearly demonstrating again that what gets measured gets results. And with that, Dave, I will thank you once again and turn it back to you. What gets measured gets results. Great. It's really so true. It's so true. Black Knight now owns Motivity Solutions, and we're excited to be soon having them as hopefully a radio sponsor here on both our programs. So, so much to talk about, so little time. But Andy Shell, you're a big fan of KPIs. Good to have you with us. You haven't always had the chance to be with it because you travel a lot, but it's really anytime we get to have you on, it's, I'm really looking forward to getting your analysis. Um, uh, especially after we listened to the interview that we recorded with Mark Jones. But what do you got for us on the front side of that, Andy? Well, thanks, Dave. Well, yes, absolutely. KPIs are one of my favorite set of initials. And, um, <laughs> you know, Alice did a great job just now of laying out some of the key issues around the GSE reform. And as she commented, it's bigger than a breadbasket. 
it's complicated, it's pervasive, it's intrusive, it's risk uh, potential is substantial for everybody. So I'm glad that you're covering this uh, topic so thoroughly. And and as it relates to that, I've been wanting to uh, take a deeper dive into the servicing arena because remitting uh, collected funds to the security holders through the agencies is a very, very complicated process. And, and where the advanced process is initiated, so we need to understand the impact on servicing. So I'm great. I'm glad that Mark is going to be speaking, and look forward to hearing all of his comments. So what's today? Today, Dave, it's Monday, August the seventh, right? You said that at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that means that means it's seven days after the it's seven days after the first of the it's the seven days after the close of the month. So yep. what should yep. we have on our desk today? We should have our financials. Our accounting department right. should have our financials ready to go to show us how much money we made. So I always ask this question in and around this time of the month, do you have your financials? And as part of having your financials, you'll also have your KPIs. So you'll know today what is the cost per loan by branch. And you'll be able to measure the branch profitability to see how well it's doing, to see maybe there's too many processors in a branch, or maybe there's other costs that are driving that branch profitability down. So you need to know this stuff. You can't run a business without knowing this stuff. Um, and still, we've got a lot of people that are out there winging it and just with a hope and a prayer believing that they're going to be okay. So um, but about KPIs and about accounting and about branch profitability, uh, for the companies that we directly support, <clears throat> they get their financials on about the second or third day of the month. So some companies I, I know and work with don't get their financials out till the 20th or 30th or halfway into the next month. And, you know, you just can't run a business that way. There's something seriously wrong if it takes an accounting department that long to get their numbers out. It literally should be reconcile some stuff, post some entries, push a button, financials come out. So if that's not what you have, then let's talk. Um, so one more quick point, Dave. Uh, accounting webinar starting up again. We just finished the servicing webinar. Great response, great attendance. And now we're going to do accounting webinar through the MBA, mba.org education, starting in October. So if you want to know more about how to drive financial-based KPIs and all the way through the most advanced aspect of hedging, including interest rate lock commitment, unrealized gain, applying cost to complete for the appropriate presentation of your financial details, then attend the webinar. And um, if nothing else, if you, if you get the slides and you get the recording, any night you can't sleep, guaranteed insomnia cure <laughs> to listen to me talk about accounting. That's okay. not true. You actually, if if you can actually, if, if, if you make accounting interesting, even for a guy like me who is accounting adverse or accounting impaired <laughs> challenge, you do a great job, Andy. That's not true. Although some might think that's what it's a great line, but it's not true. You make it interesting. You're a very good educator. I love how you take the complex things and make it understood. Appreciate it, Andy. Good job. Good to have you back. And I'm looking forward. Sure, your commentary at the end of this podcast I mean at the end of the podcast after the interview with Mark so take lots of notes I know you'll have some really good insights because he gets into one of your favorite topics Andy gets into loan servicing Perfect. so we talk about it all right yes. very good folks let's take a look we're gonna run over to to run over to our good friend Dave Bolin over at Finastra and let's hear what he has to say and then 
Also, listen to the ad from Velma, who can help you get your message, market, message, your marketing message out. Easy for me to say. Anyway, we'll be right back. Here's David Bolin. Hey, thanks a lot, David. Finastra is extremely proud to be a key sponsor of the Licking on Lending program. Known formally as DNH, Finastra's global lending division provides end-to-end solutions and innovation to the full spectrum of lenders, including independent mortgage bankers, community banks and credit unions, and even the largest banks globally. Learn more about how you provide an innovative digital experience for your borrowers by leveraging our multi-channel point-of-sale solution, which includes the new MortgageBot Mobile by visiting our website at finastra.com. So true. Great. Yeah, it's a new technology company, but it's a lot of products that are there, and it's coming together in a very exciting way. Speaking at the at the uh, perspective conference that they have in Orlando here at the end of the month, if you haven't registered for it, be sure to do so. Now, let's hear from Brent Emler or about Brent Emler and the staff there at Velma. Be right back with after this with Mark Jones' interview. Are you using one of those expensive CRMs that your loan officers won't use? If so, then give my friends at Velma a call and let them help you create a customer journey that relies on the data and not on loan officer interaction. I encourage you to consider working with Velma to create a truly automated marketing experience for your organization. Velma makes marketing automation easy. Schedule a demo today at Velma.com, V-E-L-M-A.com. You know, when you look at the different things that go on in the industry, you look at at some of the things that are probably most significant. And I would say one of the most significant things that's happening is GSE reform. That's why we're focusing on it so intensely with so many guests because we want to get a clear perspective. Alice, as Andy mentioned, did a good job of summarizing the first four programs. So now today we have Mark Jones joining us. He's traveling. In fact, he's just now landing in Washington, D.C. as we talk to uh, go back up on the hill and work with the MBA and some important initiatives. So with that, I caught up with Mark late last week and I recorded the following interview. Pay attention to this. There's some really good information here, especially when you think about the administration that's there. Ben Carson and Secretary, uh, uh, Treasury Secretary Stephen Muchin. Very interesting information. Stay tuned all the way through for this interview. Folks, I'm excited to have Mark Jones, who's CEO and co-founder of AmeriFirst Mortgage Banking Group, located up in Michigan. Mark, good to have you with us again. David, how you doing? It's great to be with you again. It's always a pleasure to have you on the radio. I have so much respect for you as a leader and what you're doing in our industry, and I'm really grateful that you took a few minutes to add to the discussion we've been having now for several weeks, number of weeks, on GSE reform. So there's a couple things that I want to start off with. First off, and you have had the privilege because you are uh, on the board at the NBA of being in meetings that are very important. And I think you kind of help give our listeners a behind the scenes look at what's going on. I had the privilege of meeting Ben, Dr. Ben Carson in the green room at Fox Studios in New York. Oh gosh, it's probably been four years ago now. I'm not sure how long. It seems like yesterday. Uh, one of those meetings just you sticks with you as fresh. Uh, but he was going on to be on with O'Reilly. I was going on to be with Cavuto. We were in the green room. It was one of those mo- moments and had a chance to visit. He was so softly spoken, I had to lean forward and almost extra work, extra hard to hear him. 
but you had a meeting with him. I was impressed with him and his knowledge, his grasp of the issues, but you sat down with him along with David Stevens and others. I would love to have you share with our listeners your impressions of that meeting and also the impressions that you picked up from David Stevens and others in attendance with you at that meeting. Well, first of all, um, you're exactly right. He does speak very softly. You have to you have to listen very carefully, and you know one wonders if that's intentional or not. So you're really paying attention. I sat right directly across the, uh, just a conference table from him, and you still had to listen very hard. But, um, as far as my impressions, um, you know, he'd been in that seat for less than two weeks, I think. And there are two primary uh, impressions that I had. The first one was that he had an amazing grasp of our issues for his short tenure there. We talked with him about uh, about some HUD priorities, you know, restoring certainty to FHA lending, uh, FHA and Ginnie Mae funding, the, the complexity of, of government servicing versus conventional servicing. And, you know, he could talk intelligently with us, you know, at our level. And, and, and we were in there with uh, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 pre- the president of uh, Wells Fargo, Dave Stevens, I mean, some pretty high-powered folks were in this meeting, and he, he hung right in there with us. The second impression uh, was the, uh, the, the team that he surrounded himself with, uh, his, 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 his immediate uh, number one uh, guy, advisor, is, is an industry insider. He, he knows the business from, from our side of the aisle, and that, you know, when you're dealing with people in Washington, a lot of times you don't get that. You get people yeah. that are kind of pol- political wonks, and they understand policy, but they don't really understand the nuts and bolts of how the business works. Well, he's surrounding himself with people who do understand the business, how the business works, and that is hugely important. It was funny on the, on the way out, uh, uh, the gentleman said to me, uh, I, I said to him, I'm so glad to have someone who understands what we do sitting on that side of the table. And he said, well, you know, that's both good and bad because I also know where the bodies are buried. So I said, you know, I'd, I'd rather, I'd rather have yeah. the knowledge than, than, than somebody who just doesn't know uh, why it's important that we do what we do. So those are my impressions. Yeah. You said that David Stevens, who has also been in there, uh, had a favorable walk away from that. Talk briefly about that. Yeah, I, I think uh, Dave would would echo what I said. Uh, in fact, we we met as a group afterwards, uh, you know, outside the uh, outside the HUD building, uh, and to a man, we all said, "Wow, he is just it's amazing how quickly he's come to speed on, on what our issues are." And, and the other part is the the access that uh, that we have to the administration and the, and the key policymakers in the administration, particularly conser- considering that you know Dave is. Uh, Dave's a Democrat, and so he got along really well with the Democratic administration. Was appointed uh, by the Democratic administration to the to the HUD seat, and all of that, and to and to now have the kind of access that he never had under the Obama administration is 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 surprising, but in a, in a really good way. You also have had another really important meeting that I think really plays into the whole GSE mm-hmm. reform discussion, and that was with Muchin. Is, tell us about that. Yeah, with the Treasury Department, uh, uh, our chief legal counsel, Sheila Strong, and I, along with uh, probably 12 or 12 or 15 other companies, uh, uh, IMBs uh, of various sizes, uh, went and met with Mnuchin's uh, Treasury uh, leaders. And they, they really wanted our input as to how uh, – 
QRM, QM, Dodd-Frank, all of that was affecting lending. And, and we went through, you know, ability to pay, um, QM versus QRM, uh, the, the, TILA, the, the all the TRID stuff, um, the, the origination regulations. We talked about uh, we talked about regulation by enforcement on, on behalf of the CFPB rather than the typical notice and comment. Uh, it was a it was a, about a five or six hour meeting, and they wow. listened very intently, asked very appropriate questions, and then about two or three weeks later, sent us uh, a, a, a document back that kind of distilled down everything they heard us say, and they nailed it. They absolutely nailed it. And I think a lot of the, the reform changes that you're going to see coming forward in all those different areas are direct a direct result of that. Uh, there's a gentleman there uh, named Craig Phillips who, uh, who's who got a great relationship with Dave Stevens, talking of, of, of access, who, uh, interestingly enough, was a, was a Hillary Clinton supporter. Uh, but now he finds himself as like the number one guy to Steve Mnuchin in Treasury because he's, he's, he's brilliant. And uh, we're really lucky to have him there. I do believe that GSE reform is going to happen in part because of Mutin's drive to make this happen and his conviction mm-hmm. that this is essential. It's good for taxpayers and it's also good for the industry. Let's move over to get your thoughts about the GSE reform uh, as put forth by the NBA. We mm-hmm. had Bill Cosgrove on at the beginning of this series, and mm-hmm. you too are an independent mortgage banker. I'd like to get your perspective on that. And so just generally give me some thoughts about what you know you do you support every tenant that's inside of what the GSE reform principles and guardrails document is the MBA has put forth I do. I, I think there's been a lot of time and attention paid to IMBs of all sizes. And, you know, when I look at, uh, and I've written a couple of uh, LinkedIn articles that you've probably read and says about the same thing, the number one thing that we have to worry about as as IMBs is that we we make sure that lenders of all size and all charters are, are treated the same, and so uh, uh, with with no volume discounts to uh, to the big guys. Because if you look back to prior to the meltdown, when the the major lenders, Wells Fargo, um, Countrywide, City, all those guys, when when the GSEs would negotiate volume discounts. In other words, if you send all your business to us, we'll lower your G fee. It got into a G fee war between the bigs. And so you had three or four lenders who had a, a guarantee fee uh, that was uh, the equivalent, when you ter- think of it in terms of loan pricing, 80 to 85 basis points better than any other lender could get. And so what that meant was all we small IMBs and, and actually even the medium-sized IMBs really couldn't compete with that extra 80 basis points advantage they had. So we ended up having to sell all of our servicing to them. And so in order to make sure that that doesn't happen in the future, uh, ensuring that it's enshrined in into what Congress does, that there there is a, a level playing field with no volume discounts, no special specialty deals based on size or charter, that's in there and it's and it's kind of through Throughout the whole, it's woven, woven throughout the whole thing. So, yeah, I'm I'm very excited about that as a small IMB. It it, it makes for a much more robust uh, mortgage market. A lot a lot of different options for cons- consumers to be able to go local and stay local if if they want versus everyone service servicing winding up uh, you know with three or four mega mega servicers. One of the things that 
Bill said, David Stevens said on the interviews that we had, and listeners, if you haven't listened to the previous broadcast, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to this series of broadcasts going back to the beginning of July when we started these. But one of the things that's a reoccurring theme, Mark, is there's concern that this administration, which you know, we've heard you talk about Mutin, and you believe he's thinking in, down the right path, but still there's a concern that we may have a new director that may not be as strong an advocate as as Mel Watts has been. He's done a decent job, and I was a little concerned when he came in if he was going to be as effective as he was, and he's turned out to be a good FHFA director. The concern is that if that yep. the new person coming in there would be uh, would lean more towards a, a free market model, and in a free market model, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are free to cut deals with whoever they want to cut deals with, and if they want to go to Bank of America and say your GFE is now eight and Amerifirst because your little guy yours is a thirty, there's not a darn thing I can do about it, and right. so if through the the GSC uh, reform legislation, if it's not enshrined this level playing field, and you get um, someone in Mel Watt's chair who is like that, you know, people who have bigger volume should get an advantage, then we go back to where we were in 2000, and and I don't Which, think any anybody wants that except for maybe the big the big three or four. So that's exactly. that's the concern, and that's why it's so important that we get this legislation done and across the finish line and signed into law, and those principles enshrined into the law. So whoever's in that chair has to has to do what the law says. And right now it's being it's being uh, portrayed as a, a basically a utility model where. Right. Everybody has the same access to the guarantors, Uh, and Ginnie Mae runs just like that now on the government side. It doesn't matter if you're Bank of America or Citi or Amerifirst or any other smaller IMB. Your GF is six basis points. Period. So. And that's the way it should be. We all agree yes. on that. And, and we had Joe Murin on as a part of a panel discussion last week's mm-hmm. discussion about this. He's stressing that same point. It, 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 that's a great model of what they have. I think that's what we're trying to, and the NBA is trying to get uh, the GSEs to model is that type of a thing with maybe with two guarantors instead of one. So. Is there something we're not seeing that you're seeing or that David is seeing, others are seeing about this administration? You know, I, I hate to overgeneralize, but uh, right. since you asked, uh, generally speaking, uh, Democratic administrations tend to be more government-centric, and Republican yep. administrations tend to be more private market-centric. And so the concern Good. is a private market-centric appointee might lean that way more, too much more that they could change. I don't think they nobody knows for sure who the new FHFA director would be, but there's a concern. The concern is just that, that the, if you generalize and say Republicans typically act like this and Democrats typically act like this when it comes to, you know, housing finance, then we, we have that risk. Uh, now, pulling it back the other way is what happened, you know, when the GSEs went too far with, you know, with the, the private capital model. And so, right. I, you know, I'm not... Uh, you know, I, I'm not convinced that it's going to happen, but there's enough of a fear there, and I think that's what you're hearing from Stevens and Cosgrove okay. and, and everybody else, that, you know, we don't want to have to worry about that. Let's enshrine these principles into law right now so there, so so that there's no wiggle room for that FHFA director. It's got to be this. 
that answers so many questions. What you just said answers so many questions of listeners that are coming in. Let's shift over to the primary reason I wanted to have you on this. I love everything you've shared. I think it's so helpful in putting the previous podcasts in context. And now I want to shift into what this means to servicing. What do you think is the most important thing that legislators get right in the GSE reform efforts as it relates to the servicing side of this business? Well, I have to tell you, a lot of this is going to sound like you hear on the origination side, so forgive me. But first, I think Congress needs to make sure they retain a cash window and give small and mid-sized lenders the option of either servicing retained or servicing release executions. By doing this, you know, it's going to ensure that, that smaller lenders like like me, uh, have a legitimate shot at uh, at retaining uh, servicing through all through all market cycles. And you know, in order for that option to be more than just theoretical, you need to have the same protections on the servicing side that we have on the origination side, or that we're talking about the origination side right. in the in the in the MBA document we just talked about. That's making sure that uh, the playing field remains level for all lenders. All of all lenders of all types and sizes with no volume discounts, no special risk sharing deals, no loan loss or LLPA waivers. So the larger lenders get these huge advantages they've enjoyed over the smaller ones. If we don't get that part right, then, you know, we're going to go back to the year 2000 when the only option smaller IMBs had was to sell servicing release to aggregators. And, you know, when that, when we were in that world, 90% of servicing wound up with three or four companies. The reason that they ran into trouble is because they gained their efficiencies for what they were paying for the servicing. They had to, they had to try to service too many loans with too little staff and they started relying on you know computer programs and offshoring to keep their costs down and it you know it drove massive service issues uh, consumers didn't like that they, and the consumers didn't have the choice back then they all wound up at, at some of these guys and you know the choice to, to stay with your local lender t- who's more responsive to the customer's needs that's really what we need in order to stay in, in that area is Good to point. make sure that level pl- we have that re- we retain that level playing field yeah, I think that's such a good point. You know, what kind of difficulties do you foresee with reform? Once again, on the servicing side is where we're focusing on. You know, the, the other the other concern. Actually, this is a pretty serious concern that I have. Uh, and I, you know, we I've been at several meetings with the FHFA before Mel Watt was there, and and with Fannie and Freddie when the, when the meltdown was happening, and. And several times uh, they've been batting around this this idea of changing the servicing model uh, to uh, what's called a fee for service model. Right. The, the the thought here is that uh, you know s- standard performing servicing is far cheaper to service than default servicing, and that of course right. it's true. Currently our arrangement is we you know we make 25 basis points on the whole book of business, and it doesn't cost nearly 25 basis points to service a conforming loan. Right. But we get those extra dollars that from from the from the performing loans so that we can afford to uh, we can afford to service the, the 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 defaulted loans and take them through foreclosure. And, and of course, on top of that, there's also a profit motive, right? We we, we want to make money in this business. It's we're not doing it. For 
for free. Well, what happened during the meltdown is we the industry had the equivalent of a 100-year flood. And, right. and the number of defaulted loans versus the number of performing loans that every servicer in the company country had uh, was, was enormous, and, and we lost money, and uh, a lot of money, actually. So this fee-for-service idea uh, was let's bifurcate the servicing, bifurcate between performing loans and defaulted loans, and lower the, lower the service premium, servicing premium on the performing loans and then take the defaulted loans off of the servicer's hands and give them to a specialty servicer who specializes that kind of stuff so, so that they wouldn't have to deal with those extra expenses. And they thought that would all make sense. The sense. But the problem is, uh, it, you know, if you're not on the servicing side of the business, you don't realize if, if you take the profit motive out of the servicing business, We'll go back again to where uh, these large servicers are, will be offshoring their uh, their servicing, or they'll be using computer programs. Uh, smaller servicers will will they'll have to exit the business because there's no profit. So we'll we'll sell it all back into there. And you know, uh, uh, do you remember do you remember that uh, Discover Card commercial where the, the the foreign guy answered the phone? This is Biggie. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> great analogy. If we go back to that, where you've got um, a performing customer, a, a customer yeah. with a performing loan who's got an insurance claim or an right. escrow issue, they you know they want to talk with somebody now. They want to talk with a friendly local servicer who's going to be able to get them through the process. And if you if you take all of the profit out of uh, servicing through this model, then uh, you know that, those performing customers will be they'll be unhappy because again this the service levels will go down they'll need to because there isn't any there isn't any revenue in there so um you know i, I think uh, our customers appreciate working with a local lender you know and generally yeah. we're more responsive yeah. they don't they don't want the fear that they're going to be sold out to a large national institution and i think the fee for service concept undermines this the fee for service thing undermines this concept of local service it's important to preserve this local servicing options for our, for our customers in any type of gse reform whether it's through legislation or fhfa action i i couldn't agree with you more so well said mark it's hard to believe that we've gone through all our time for this interview already i want to wrap this up with this one question is there anything else you see for servicing and gse reform that we haven't talked about already well, there's a couple of things. First, the biggest one is how will legacy servicing and new model servicing worlds, how will they, how they, how will they coexist? You know, we don't want to maintain two separate systems for the old, the old book of business uh, and the new point. book of business. We want to grapple with that. So ensuring a seamless transition, you know, the devil will be in the details. But for example, if, if new system offers uh, investors in legacy MBS an opportunity to, quote unquote, trade in their old security for a new one, you know, questions would abound about how, how are servicers supposed to manage the process for the investors. So that would be my biggest concern with it. Uh, in the, I guess in the hoped for category, you know, I would love to see alignment of the servicing standards between uh, the government servicing and the GSEs. There's such huge differences now, and, you know, it doesn't make any sense. You know, I'm actually uh, uh, working on a project with the Ur Urban Institute uh, right now on the servicing side to, to try and address these issues, and we're hopeful we can come up with something that works for consumers and lenders uh, on the alignment process. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, as for legislation, you, you know, you never know what might be added in here into a 
reform bill that is. Maybe we could get FHA lending standards addressed, as, as we see in the PATH Act. Uh, one thing that I would really hope for, uh, and I think this is a huge tsunami that, that people don't see coming, and that is the FHA assumptions. You know, we've been yes. in a downward, uh, downward uh, declining interest rate environment for so long that we have not had many uh, assumption requests. This is for, this is for FHA servicers because you can do an assumption yes. on an FHA loan. Well, the moment that rates start going back up dramatically, the amount of assumption requests that we're going to have are going to go through the roof. And I was part of a group within MBA that went to HUD to, to try and get the, F, the assumption fee increased because it was set in 1985, David, 1985. Wow. And it was Our 500 bucks. If you just index that for inflation, it'd be like $1,200 today. But, but that was also for when we could do informal assumptions. It was just like a record change fee. Now we have yeah. to do full credit qualification and all that stuff. So we lobbied the old, the old FHA group to get that increase, and they increased it, but they increased it to $900, which, which, which is thanks, but it's not enough. And so what I'm hoping yeah. is you look at the, the, the studies that we did through MBA and through some other organizations, it costs to, to process an FHA uh, assumption loan, you know, about $1,500 in lender fees plus the hard costs, and there's some hard costs we have to eat. So one of the things I'd love to see in there is a, is a real rate number that yes. makes, it, make, makes it make sense. Because I'm telling you, Dave, when rates go up, there's going to be so many assumption requests at every lender that is that and this isn't just an IMB issue. This That's is right. a every every lender that services FHA loans is going to have a huge problem because they're going to have all these requests and they're going to be losing money on every single one. A lot to consider here, Mark. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to join us. Really excited to have you here with us. And I'm excited to have you co-hosting with me the new Lickin' on Leadership program. And it's just an honor to be working with you. I value your contribution to our industry like you've talked about here. You are so active, involved with the MBA and leadership, making changes, going into D.C. To, to really make sure this industry stays on the right course. And that doesn't benefit you directly. I mean, yes, it has some benefit in the outcome of it, but it's really so much about leadership in the industry. So, Mark, I wanna, I'm honored to have you co-host the, with me the Lickin' on Leadership program, and then also for you taking time today to share your insights on GSE reform. Thank you so much. Well, well, David, I'm really happy to uh, to be part of Licking on Leadership. I'm flattered that you asked me, and I really look forward to doing that along with you. It sounds like you've got some pretty exciting guests lined up already for that. So, uh, and leadership is is a, it's a huge, huge thing to me. It's 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 probably the most important thing that that you that we need to get to in our industry when, when you get of any kind of size or scope. And uh, I, it was my pleasure to be with you today to, to talk through these things. I, I, uh, you're right. It, it is important that we, that we support the entire industry, and I'm, and I'm pleased to do that. And so thank you for having me, and uh, I look forward to a great future ahead with you. I am looking forward to it as well. Folks, we've had as our guest Mark Jones of AmeriFirst Mortgage. He's the CEO and co-founder. If you want to get a hold of Mark, contact me, and I'll share you how you can do that. If you want to, go check out the website, www.amerifirst.com. Mark, have a great day. Look forward to having you back again soon. And for those that want to listen to Mark every week, tune in to the Lickin' on Leadership program, soon to be released. Thank you.
Whoops, I thought I had the uh, mute button off there. Andy, good to have your commentary on thoughts as we wrap up this podcast. There was a lot of information in there. I mean, it, it sometimes feels like a drinking from a fire hose, but so critical, so important, really good. Well, I had a couple of a couple of thoughts. Uh, I'll make three three key points. One is that um, it sounds like the administration understands the issue. That Ben Carson, really super smart guy, of course he's a brain surgeon, yeah. even though yeah. he does not speak loudly. So, um, but <laughs> aside from that, super smart guy. So that's a good thing. Uh, I, I think that Mark identified some really key issues around the avoiding the G fee war in the future. So I, I kind, of, kind of distilled this down into one point and then one kind of pause or, or caution. The first one is that uh, Mark mentioned about small servicers still having access to the cash window for the agencies. This is really important from a servicing perspective because when you deliver into the cash window, the remittance cycle is actual, actual, which means that if you collect it, you remit it, there's no advances. On the MBS cycle, it's schedule, schedule. So if you have got MBS servicing, then you have to remit it whether if you collect it or not, and that creates the advance. That's like all Ginnie Mae is and like the Fannie Mae MBS securitization process is. So small servicers can avoid the advance risk by delivering into the cash window. That's an important point uh, that he wants to be sure and preserve. The other thing about all of this that still strikes me as um, inconsistent, and that is that we, we want to convert the GSEs to be like uh, public capital, so like a public utility where it's, there, there's limited uh, capitalistic dynamic in the organization such that uh, they're prohibited from giving a, a, a large a deliverer of product a benefit in either LLPAs or GFEs. They want to exclude that capability from the new GSEs, while at the same time, we want to – so that's kind of a public utility model. If you, right. if you then at the same time say, well, but on the servicing side, we don't want the public utility model. We want to have uh, capitalism. We want for you to pay us a fee, and if we can make more money at it, great. We're going to get one fee for all functions. We're not going to have fee for service. Because if you go to the fee for service model, then servicing then becomes a public utility as well. Very likely, profit motive will be gone. Quality of service will fall dramatically, at least in terms of the customer experience, assuming taxes and insurance stuff get paid. So it, it still strikes me as um, cognitive dissonance to want we want we want public utility version for the delivery of loans to the GFE, but we want private capital version for the servicing fee side of the structure. I agree with Mark. That's what we want. It just strikes me as inconsistent to do both at the same time. And then, I guess, lastly, is that we really kind of want this this public capital model, which tends to be more the democratic side. So I, there's no answer to this, but why didn't it happen? Why why are we still talking about this? Why didn't Obama do something about this when they had the chance? <laughs> so I don't know. It just strikes me as odd that, that – I'm not optimistic that things are going to get done the way we want them to get done. I hate to be the pessimist. You know, I want it to go well, but and I want pessimist or so realist. Pessimist, pessimist or realist. I know. Well, I, I'm trying to balance the balance both because I want it to happen, but and I want everything yeah. Mark said to be true and happen exactly like yeah. he said it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, Andy. 
Well, I appreciate your commentary. Alice did a good job summarizing all the other interviews. You just did a good job of really honing in on those. I really enjoyed the interview. I love doing these interviews with these kind of industry leaders that have such critical thought. I think the thing that was probably brought more clarity to me is I was confused. I mean, if if this is a good thing and this industry I mean, and this administration is driving it forward, why is there such an, an intense uh, sense of urgency to get it done beforehand? And he really brought clarity to the Republican generalization and the uh, that you know it's more free markets, which could create some issues, whereas the Democratic side has a tendency to be more government-centric, and I thought he really brought clarity to that. That was really helpful for me as I was trying to explain it to different people. So anyway, Andy, it's a, it's a complicated issue, but it is uh, it's one that we're going to be facing. I think it's one that's going to be uh, going to get resolved in this administration and I think in the next couple of years, so it'll be real interesting. Um, I respect your healthy, cautious, slight hint of pessimism mixed in there so uh that is going to really happen great job andy thank you so much thanks for hanging into the end of the podcast uh to add that commentary really appreciate it always My fun pleasure, to have Dave. you happy to help next week folks we've got Absolutely. august 14th it's Next week, we've got Glenn Corso and Scott Olson. It'll be the last in the series, the sixth in the series on this. Again, this is a smaller, small lender trade association that Glenn Corso has. Uh, we're going to be really kind of getting a few other aspects, a few other uh, optics on this that might not have been considered in previous discussions. Looking forward to having you here next week, folks. Have a great week. Look forward to having you back here next week. Tell others about it. And check out the new website, the new Lickin' on Lending website. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin' of Transformational Mortgage Solutions. Join us next week, and thanks for listening.